Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Tom Quinn and I'm the Analysis and Insights Manager at the ORE Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. Earlier this month, the UK government announced a record amount of renewable energy was secured through the biggest ever round of the contracts for different scheme. The auction results once again underline that offshore winds is primed to continue playing an increasingly important role in our energy mix for years to come, as well as highlighting the role of floating wind and tidal energy within our future energy mix. But what do the results mean? I'm joined today by our Head of Analysis and Insights, Gavin Smart, for his take on the latest results. Hey, I thought I'd start you off uh, because today we're going to be talking about the big news, which is the CFD auction results. But just to get our listeners on the same page, we can set you a little 60 second challenge. It's important for our listeners to understand what we're talking about. So for this episode, 60 second challenge, Gavin, please, can you explain the terms in under a minute? So what is the contract for difference? Contract for difference or CFD, as it's often known is a mechanism which ensures that low carbon generators receive a fixed pre-agreed price for the electricity that they produce during the time the contract is running. So that fixed agreed price is called the strike price and the length of the CFD contract currently is 15 years. So what happens is generators receive revenue from selling their electricity into the market as usual, but when the market reference price is below the strike price, They'll also receive a top-up payment to the level of the strike price. Conversely, if the market reference price is above the strike price, then the generator has to pay back the difference. So the net amount that they receive per megawatt hour is only ever the strike price. And to round it off, the whole point is that the CFD provides stability for low-carbon generators to encourage the move towards a secure, diverse, low-carbon electricity supply in the UK. Thanks. That was a pretty, pretty detailed roundup in sixty seconds. Um, oh, you need to give me give me thirty seconds next time. Yeah. Think. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe for the next one. So uh, this is allocation round four, uh, the fourth CFD round. How is it different from the previous ones? Probably the main differences were one, the inclusion of what's known as hot one or more established technologies such as onshore wind and solar for the first time since allocation round one back in twenty fifteen. And significantly from an offshore renewables point of view, the inclusion of tidal stream also included uh, in a CFD auction for the first time since AR1. And not just included, but given its own ring fence budget of £20 million. And then we had the inclusion for the first time ever of floating offshore wind, which also had its own ring fence budget of £24 million. And if my 60 second allows, I'll also say that it's the first time anyone would have confidently predicted that the absolute vast majority of projects would be awarded strike prices at or below any reasonable forecast wholesale electricity price. And uh, finally, uh, in 60 seconds, how many projects have been awarded a CFT? Okay, so I won't talk about each individually in 60 seconds, but the total capacity awarded in AR4 was almost 10.8 gigawatts. So that's almost as much as the 11.2 gigawatts awarded in allocation rounds one to three combined. So it is significant. 
Then in terms of projects in AR4, so there were 93 successful projects across seven different technologies. And I know that sounds like a lot of projects, uh, so we can break it down a bit to make sense of it. So solar PV, onshore wind, remote island wind, and energy from waste were awarded a total of 3.7 gigawatts across 78 projects. And now for the good stuff, from an offshore renewables point of view anyway, just under seven gigawatts of offshore wind across five projects, including two in Scotland, he said, waving his flag. Uh, one single project, Hornsey 3, accounted for just over 2.8 gigawatts or 40% of the offshore wind total, which in itself is pretty remarkable. Then we had 41 megawatts of tidal stream across four projects, three in Scotland and one in Wales. And finally, 32 megawatts of floating wind down in the southwest of England. Like you said, it's a very significant round for offshore renewable energy. Was there anything in particular that surprised you or any, any key takeaways from this round? So I guess we can talk about each of those three offshore renewables technologies in a little bit of depth, maybe starting with floating offshore wind. But as we talk through this, I'm going to refer on and off to a couple of blogs um, that I wrote back in September and November last year, so 2021, about how much capacity could be afforded for each technology based on the allocated monetary budget and the administrative strike price. So I think it's, it's a really useful context for some of the outcomes. Looking at floating offshore wind, we know there was a budget ring fenced of £24 million and an administrative strike price was set of £122 per megawatt hour. So that would have afforded a maximum of 54 megawatts. Now, in the event, we had an actual strike price awarded of £87.30, which is almost 30% lower than the administrative strike price. And yet we ended up with only 32 megawatts, so 40% lower than the maximum affordable. So from that, I guess we can home in on a couple of things. So first, that £87.30 is actually the strike price, which would buy you 88 megawatts of capacity. Again, you can see that in the chart on the blogs I referenced. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that 88 megawatts covers 32 megawatts at TwinHub, which was successful, plus the 56 megawatts planned at Blythe Offshore Wind Demonstrator 2, or ODD 2. So my guess is that £87.30 was bid on the assumption that both projects would see that as the magic number to make everyone a winner. Now, we're not here talking about bidding strategies per se, but clearly not everyone bidding took the same view. Otherwise, we'd be talking about 88 megawatts awarded rather than 32. So in one way, you could say it looks a bit like a missed opportunity. And I guess it also means that whoever was bidding didn't read your blog. Yeah, which is quite a shocker, really. But at the, at the same time, there's, you know, there's a lot of strategic intent and other motivations you know, that drive bidding strategies. It's a very, very complicated process, depending on what you think others are going to bid you might take a slightly more aggressive view to ensure that you, as in a low price, to ensure that you win a project. Or you might take the view that you think you've got the best chance and can make the best price. And so you'll actually bid a bit higher, expecting that other people will be bidding even higher. And either way, unless you get it spot on, you can see that it'll always backfire because you'll end up being under-rewarded for what you could have got, or you'll do yourself out of getting a project. So it depends on how you look at it. So for what it's worth, when it comes to talking about the price, I mean, one of the other points is the £87.30 is certainly, in my view, a very sharp price, what is essentially a pre-commercial scale project. So 
when the admin strike price of £122 per megawatt hour was published. We looked at our projections for, for floating wind cost reduction and thought, yeah, OK, that's just about in line with our LCV trajectory for projects commissioning in 2027. So we can see projects coming in at that level. We didn't see in our projections LCOE coming down to the 80 to 90 pound a megawatt hour range until a year or two later. And now that year or two might not seem like a big deal, but the big driver, or at least one of the very big drivers of coming down from 110 or 120 pounds a megawatt hour to 80 or 90 pounds is project scale. And we were looking at the first projects of 300 megawatts plus in 2028 or 29. And that would be one of the biggest impacts in cost. So moving away from the inherent inefficiencies of small projects towards reaping the benefits of going large, getting more return on the large fixed costs you have just by the nature of building and operating offshore. So £87.30 is an impressive price for a 32 megawatt project in 2027. Do you think there's any hope here of that Twin Hub project benefiting from other floating wind that's being deployed around the country and around the world? So I'm thinking of the Intog rounds any of those potentially going to get off the ground in time for Twin Hub to benefit? I think we, we have to hope so. I mean, certainly from a, an Intog point of view, the, the timing, we have to be looking at Intog going forward ahead of the bigger Scotland projects. Otherwise, we're missing out on a big part of the benefit of doing the Intog work. And I guess, you know, one of the things about Twin Hub, you know, that they, they have kind of stated how much commitment they're making to the local supply chain, which is obviously a huge, huge positive. Um, now, how that hooks up with things which might be happening over in the, the northeast of Scotland remains to be seen. But yeah, there should be some synergies there. And if we can get them working on day one, then that obviously bodes well. For what it's worth, there's a couple of other things, I think, about Twin Hub that are worth saying, especially in the context of, of what I was just saying about a low price there. And that's that Twin Hub does have some key advantages. So it's based down at what was the Wave Hub site down in Southwest. And that means there are no significant project-specific development costs to recover and no transmission infrastructure costs because that's already provided. Depending on what financial return you need to make and understanding there's a massive strategic intent to move floating wind forward, both for the technology developers and for many regional stakeholders, maybe £87.30 you know, starts to look a bit more workable. There's just some unique circumstances there that we're not going to see again. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, is that the CFDs are awarded on a national level, but there are some important regional considerations that we need to take into account. That's floating wind. Any other new technologies that have been awarded that uh, were slightly surprising? Not surprising as such, but I think in terms of tidal stream, um, I guess it's worth again just referring to that November 2021 blog, which was just after the, the £20 million ring fence for tidal stream was announced. So we knew that that £20 million could afford about 34 megawatts at the admin price of £211 a megawatt hour. And now the relatively small project sizes in tidal stream do make it slightly easier to fit more projects in. And the 41 megawatts that were actually awarded at the price of £178.54 means that the, the £20 million budget has been just about fully utilised. Well, According to the required affordability calculations, at least that's what it affords. So that's unlike with floating wind, where the sizes of the pegs couldn't quite fit the size and shapes of the holes available. So 
one observation is that at that strike price, the, the tidal stream ring fence budget looks like it's pretty much fully, fully utilised. For me, I mean, that's, that's an excellent result. And it also implies an LCOE not a million miles away from where we'd estimate UK tidal stream to be after 50 megawatts of total installed power. And the fact that there's a spread between Scotland and Wales should be good for overall UK supply chain development. And then I guess finally on tidal, let's say the mix of technologies, so a mix between fixed and floating devices, large and small devices, means we're taking the next steps in proving new concepts. And it'll be really interesting to see how these perform once they're operating. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well to consider what those prices mean, because if you look at the strike price awarded for tidal stream, it's roughly, what, four or five times higher than what was the strike price for offshore wind. Now, there is some potential benefits of tidal stream being more predictable, which you know adds a bit of value, but I don't think it's four to five times the value of offshore wind. Probably not. Certainly, based on studies we've done, you know there is a value, but like you said, it's not in that order of magnitude. However, the point is, you know, This is about getting tidal stream on the start of the journey offshore wind's been on. Not that we have to continue to make everything a parallel to offshore wind, but again, that's the point is that um, it's now getting the chance to prove itself towards utility scale um, and taking the same commercialisation steps and, you know, kind of winning investor confidence, bringing on the insurers, the financers, as well as the technology development. In essence, while a lot has been done, over the years, in those terms, it's very early days. Um, so yeah, the higher price makes a lot of sense because you, you have to get a chance to prove yourself in the field. Yeah, and I guess comparing it to offshore wind, like you said, that's a bit of an unfair comparison. We should really be comparing it to the cost of you know a gas-fired power plant or something like that, where it's probably getting about the level of being competitive. Looking at offshore wind, this is the big one with seven gigawatts awarded. So what are the key takeaways in that space? For what it's worth, your point there about what's the relevant price to be comparing strike prices to, I think is something that we'll we'll touch on as as we go through this discussion. In terms of offshore wind coming out of AR4, so on one level, no surprise at the further reduction in pricing from previous rounds. So the £37.35 is around 8% lower than the average of £40.67 per megawatt hour from allocation round three. I mean, there's always pressure to reduce prices. And I think, you know, optically or politically, however you want to define it, it would be hard to kind of show anything other than a decline in prices each time. And I guess similar to comments on floating wind and tidal, the winning price would have bought an amount of capacity broadly in line with capacity likely to be awarded. So in this case, the £37.35 could have afforded around 8.4 gigawatts. So in the case of offshore wind, you could say, again, there's some missed opportunity since there was only, in inverted commas, 7 gigawatts awarded and not 8.4. So in a way, perhaps the main surprise was that the potential capacity for the price wasn't quite reached. So looking at the CFD scheme more generally, how does it support the growth of offshore renewables? And does it still work? Is it still fit for purpose? There's a big question. I think the answers are a mixed bag, actually. And so we'll focus on offshore renewables. And I think we can look at the technologies we've already talked about um, individually. So when you look at tidal stream, for example, I guess to, to build on what I said before, it's a technology like that, which is at the start of its journey. And one of the key things is, you know, any technology which is significantly more expensive than the wholesale reference price. You need a way for getting it into the market. How else are you going to realise the the price you need if the market is telling you, now going back a few years, 
um, or a few months at least, that um, that you should only be paying fifty pounds a megawatt hour um, or forty pounds a megawatt hour, and yet the technology is coming in at one hundred and seventy. Then you know you need a mechanism to almost force it in on day one. But again, the whole point is that it's, it's giving it a chance to go on that cost reduction journey. So you could say for something like tidal and also floating offshore wind, again, you're at a significant, although smaller, premium to what the wholesale reference price is. It's a mechanism that people understand and um, is proved that it can bring costs down. It's proved that it's a stabilising mechanism. And again, that not only project developers understand, but also significantly that the finance community understands, but gives them sufficient certainty to understand their revenue flows and ultimately the net cash flows over the project life. That has been hugely significant. We cannot underestimate the impact of reduced cost of capital on the development of offshore wind, for example. So on one level, I think, you know, this, the CFD continues to underpin what we can do in, in terms of bringing forward low carbon generation. I think what we're starting to see, though, is that when you have a technology that's reaching a relatively mature phase, albeit still with a lot of growth to go, but certainly in price terms, when you get down in the region of being competitive with wholesale prices, I think that the rationale starts to change. So yes, it moves from being a subsidy to being purely stabilising, which still has a value. But I think we're now, we've moved to a world, you know, very rapidly in the last few months, which looks quite different from what it did in 2021. Pandemic was one thing that changed behaviours and changed markets. And now we have, you know, global conflict. We have a big political upheaval here. And as we know, wholesale electricity prices have spiked dramatically towards being above £150, occasionally above £200 per megawatt hour. So when that's the kind of world you're living in, you know, something down at £37.35 starts to look more than just a very, very good deal. What we're doing is the CFD is still driving price reduction, which should drive cost reduction, which I would argue are two different things. But when you get to that level, I think you have to question how low you want to go. So we are in this country and many others, you know, we want to build a sustainable supply chain. There's only so much you can do at lowest price. And I think for what it's worth, we hear from OEMs, tier one contractors and people further down the supply chain about how difficult it is to make money in offshore wind at the moment. And now we're just reducing price by another 8%. So in my simple head and based on you know, some of the modelling we've done, that is not going to allow you to grow your margins in the supply chain and enable reinvestment or new investment in the facilities that are needed. So it does kind of ask a question of, yes, I think people like the, the CFD, um, but whether competitive auctions are the mechanism to continue to award them and what it is we actually want to get out of it, I think needs a very mature and detailed discussion. To give an example, based on the modelling we've done, if you could have a, a strike price of £50 instead of £37.35, for example, that would allow you to increase your capex by 25%. Now, no one wants to increase their capex. No one wants to increase the strike price. But if that 25%, which is something like 500 to 600 million pounds per gigawatt of capacity, that could buy you a lot of reinvestment in the supply chain. And if you're talking about 50 pounds compared to a wholesale price, which is you know much higher than that, I'm not saying it's going to stay at 100 or 150 pounds forever. 
the chances of it returning to 40, 50 pounds in the foreseeable future, I think, are slim. So 50 pounds starts looking attractive if it buys you 500 million pounds worth of supply chain investment per gigawatt compared to, you know, a race to the bottom. I know that's quite a lot and sorry for the, the kind of the diatribe there, but I, th- I think there is a lot that we need, need to think about. And it's difficult at the moment. I mean, I guess the CFD has worked better than anticipated in a sense. The idea was to drive cost reduction. It's done that very, very quickly. But like you said, it's about how do we ensure that we capture enough UK value and maintain and build up that supply chain. And it's very hard to legislate to say, okay, you can have a higher strike price, but you have to invest in UK supply chain. That's not necessarily possible. I mean, for what it's worth, uh, and, and you know, we all understand the problems there in terms of state aid, for example, level playing field and competition law. If you just take a wee step back and kind of talk through the industry, it's, we're not talking about UK suppliers struggling to make money. We're talking about the supply chain as a whole. So regardless of UK, European or global, people are saying that the costs that they're being driven to meet are not allowing for sufficient margin to actually allow one, you know, to make a profit and two, to have anything to reinvest. It's not even just a matter of trying to somehow give the UK supply chain a leg up. This is actually saying the industry as a whole needs to be sustainable and we need a route to doing that. It's not helped by commodity prices seeing massive inflation at the moment as well. I mean, everything's going up. Which I guess is something that, um, if you don't mind, Tom, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. So while I know you've been rubbing your hands in glee at this chance to give me a public ruling for a change, I think it'd be, it'd be interesting to get you, your thoughts on a couple of market points, if I may. When we talk about the cost of energy, what do you think these latest figures are telling us? And I'm going to expand this into a kind of related point, if I may, which is how this might impact electricity prices for people like you and me if it does impact them at all? Sure. So I guess in the first point about the, the cost of energy, if we look at the CFD auction, it's it's coming at about, if we round it up to about £50 a megawatt hour in today's prices. Simon Evans at the Carbon Brief has written an interesting blog looking at, at how that compares to other sources. So at the moment, at present, the cost of running a gas-fired power plant is roughly four times that price uh, when you compare it to the uh, £50 a megawatt hour. And this isn't comparing apples with apples. This is saying just to run a gas-fired power station versus a new build renewable uh, energy source. So it just shows you that one, renewables have become very cheap, but also two, gas is very, very expensive at the moment. Now that's not necessarily going to be a long-term issue. There's been various things which you've touched on there. I mean, we've had in general supply chain challenges since uh, markets have opened or reopened after COVID. We've also got the issue ongoing with Russia and limiting gas flows into continental Europe, which in turn affects you know the UK and the global gas market. So we will see gas prices staying high for uh, at least a few years, but renewables has come in at substantially cheaper. The question for the the kind of follow-up is to say, right, so what? How's that going to affect my gas bill this winter, uh, an electricity bill uh, this winter and for the next few years? The current predictions for price cap increases this winter are, they make very sobering reading. Cornwall Insights suggesting that the price might be between 3,300 to 3,400 pounds a year, which is uh, for gas and electricity, which is massively up on what it's been for the last couple of years, where it's sat around 1,200 pounds. So it's gone up by about three times. 
Now that doesn't necessarily align with all this new renewable power coming in at very low strike prices. So what is driving that? And I guess the answer is the power markets and, and gas markets are, are broken in a sense. Electricity prices are tied to the gas price, which is not necessarily the way that things should happen, but it's the way that they do happen at the moment. Just as a kind of comparison of what this CFT option means. So if we take that £50 a megawatt hour, over the course of a year, your average home is expected to use just under three megawatt hour of, of electricity. So that would come in at about £150 a year for the wholesale component of your electricity bill. If you add on about roughly £500 in, in those other costs, uh, so policy, network and, and operating costs, that means that your electricity bill for the year for an average home should be around £650. Now that's compared to these forecasts that are roughly three times that price for this winter. So I guess there's a bit of a disconnect here. First of all, these CFD projects are not online yet, <laughs> so, so that is definitely not going to help us in the short term. But if we do expect gas prices to continue on their current trends, then there will be a big disconnect between the cost of supply and the cost that's passed on to consumers. And a lot of people are talking about the need for market reform in power markets, because anyone can see that when gas prices are low, it all looks like it's it's working and it's rosy. But when we get these massive increases in gas prices, you can see everything getting pulled up. So there's discussion of, you know, splitting the market up, having more kind of nodal or locational pricing and all sorts of different market reforms being mooted at the moment. So I think when you see this large disconnect between the kind of prices being realised in these uh, in the allocation round auctions and what we're actually paying on our bills, I think that, if nothing else does, probably makes people think that this uh, reform is maybe long overdue. Yes, I think so. I mean, it's something that could have been predicted, but as usual with uh, a lot of kind of uh, policies, they don't really, they're not necessarily taken seriously until it's, until it's too late or until it's uh, really having an impact. So that, I guess, leads us on nicely to some other policy-related things that we expect to happen in the next six months or year. Is there anything that's kind of jumping out that you think might happen in the short term? We were talking offline before about, uh, you know, any short-term impacts of the, the auction results, which, as you say, really kind of kick in in the next few years as, as projects take off. But as you said there, I think there are probably some near-term policy impacts or policy considerations that, that we can probably see gathering pace. So I think one of them is infrastructure investment. So of course, the government has been good putting its weight behind a number of funds to put into ports and, and other kind of heavy manufacturing and, and other offshore wind supply chain related infrastructure. And I think this, if anything, will be pushed on further by you know an additional 11 gigawatts of renewable energy, including seven gigawatts of offshore wind in this auction. However, I'll, I'll be honest, I do think enthusiasm has to be tempered slightly by these low prices and what I was saying before about how that's going to make it hard for someone investing in infrastructure to, to make the returns they need to make to justify that investment. It's brilliant to get the, the public sector um, funding in there to leverage the private sector. I think that is absolutely critical. But I think we have to remember that it's not just a matter of a private company going to their board and trying to release the money to invest. There's usually banks involved as well who will be even more cautious than a company's board in terms of how they're going to get the interest payments uh, for the loan that, you know, that's being asked of them. So there's a lot to be brought together. And, and again, just to squeeze on prices, I think it's just really 
it puts the spotlight on how to make these infrastructure investments work and work economically. And is there anything you think that the government or policymakers or developers can do to give a bit more confidence for these companies looking to invest in the supply chain? Well, I think one of the things, you know, we, we always hear is how important certainty of pipeline is. And I think in fairness, policies over the last number of years have brought us to a fairly clear pipeline in terms of the ambition towards 30, then 40, and now 50 gigawatts by 2030, putting the the auction mechanisms in place to enable that, leasing rounds from the Crown Estate and the Crown Estate Scotland. The pipeline certainty is is being provided to the extent that it can be. To take that further, I, I think logical next steps with the scale of our ambition in offshore wind and, and this will this can take us down a whole rabbit hole of, of where we could go. But I think it's worth mentioning that with the scale of our ambition, both in terms of deployment and supply chain growth, having more coordination in terms of which gigawatts are going to be deployed where and when, I think becomes absolutely critical. So more akin to some of the models used in Europe, for example, in the Netherlands. So you have this coordination of grids and consenting so that people are bidding for specific sites which will come on in a specific location at a specific time, rather than at the moment where the market kind of dictates where and when things are developed, which is very, very difficult for any level of supply chain, um, as well as for, you know, kind of that grid infrastructure over time. And I think those elements, I think maybe are pushing us, well, I, I would kind of hope, but I don't know, could kind of push us towards that conversation about joined up grid and consenting um, and having more centralised planning and less of the market dictation, speeding that conversation up. I'm not sure how quickly that can happen because it is a massive, massive overhaul. But I just think with the the scale of what we're trying to achieve, it's inevitable. And the sooner we get into it, the less painful it will be overall. Yeah, and and I think just to put some numbers against that, we saw National Grid ESO put out a report last week talking about what's needed to enable the energy security strategy, 50 gigawatts of offshore wind. And the numbers that they're throwing out are enormous. So suggesting £54 billion of investment in the grid, both onshore and offshore, is required to bring that capacity on. And it's across over 90 projects. So a massive, like I said, a massive overhaul. And a lot of coordination will be required to make it work. It certainly is. Those kind of numbers are, are eye-watering. Part of that as well, going back to what I was saying, is you know, some of that in that grid investment, we're talking about offshore hubs, you know, which are going to connect in multiple gigawatts. And if you have different projects coming online at different times, there's a risk that you build that connection capacity without a project to connect in certainly at the right time, or maybe ever, you know, if, if investments change. So the ability to put that infrastructure in place and also dictate when the projects connecting in are, are going to be built and come online, I think it could be a bit of a game changer. So to some extent, I struggle to see how that scale of investment makes sense unless you do a lot more of this coordination. Now, I know it can take different flavours, different shapes and sizes, but it feels like that's the way, the way we should be moving. And I guess it's possible that this opens up the door for other routes to market for some of this power. So looking at hydrogen markets or or other things where you don't necessarily need a grid connection or you don't need as big a grid connection. And I guess linking into storage projects and and all the rest of it might be suddenly a lot more attractive. We all know that's absolutely a a big part of the equation here. The grid, an extension or enhancements of a national grid type setup will take you so far 
but certainly in terms of the, the level of electrification we want to do, and not just you know, in our homes and in industry, but you know, with transport, agriculture, maritime, aviation, the scale of electrification is, is just massive. So yeah, all these, all these vectors we need to be bringing forward. Now, that's not necessarily things that are going to be kicked off in the next six months driven by allocation round four. But I think, again, just as a statement of intent in terms of the volume of low carbon generation coming on, it really shows the direction of travel and that we need to get a move on sooner rather than later. And I guess we, we've spoken a little bit about reforming or changing the CFD process, but do you think some developers might get ahead of that and just ignore it and start developing their projects on a merchant basis? That for me is a really, really interesting one. We've obviously, we've seen that already, for example, with Seagreen, where there's a, a CFD for what, about 450 megawatts out of over a, a gigawatt of project there. We've also seen Moray West being awarded just under 300 megawatts out of a total capacity of almost 900. The signs there are, you know, that CFDs are starting to be used as a proportion to underpin a larger project. Examples might be, and now I've got no inside knowledge. Um, I, I don't know what the thinking is in different projects. Examples might be East Anglia 3, 1.4 gigawatt has just won its CFD. We know there's the East Anglia hub, so there's East Anglia 2 and East Anglia 1 North. Potentially, you know, they could look at some or all of that as being an add-on underpinned by a a CFD for 1.4 gigawatts. Similarly, in Norfolk, where we had the One Norfolk project winning a CFD, again, 1.4 gigawatts or so. And then you've got the Norfolk Vanguard project, which, you know, similar size could potentially be, you know, be bundled up. You know, the investment decision could work based on having a CFD for half of it. And, you know, the point we were saying before about, it depends on your view of how long market prices are going to stay high, or at least how high they're going to stay, you know, in that 15-year CFD life. Now, looking out to 2040-odd is is a thankless task, and we'll all be wrong. But, you know, your view of where wholesale power prices compared to £37.35 is really going to dictate how attractive it looks to take at least some of your project merchants. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, even in the next few months, we hear that at least one of these projects is going to do just that. Just to wrap up, because we're, we're the uh, ORA catapult, we need to talk about technology and innovation. It's still going to be a thing, and it's potentially going to become even more important as uh, developers try to reduce their costs. But is there anything happening for the rest of the year that you think might uh, be front of mind? Absolutely. And yes, I know it's, it's, it's easy to get carried away with the policy discussion when you know based on auctions, but Thinking about the, again, these sharp prices from the auction, I think technology-wise, this is it's likely to accentuate people's desire for ever larger turbines. So from that point of view, we might see more interest in the roles of composites in turbine design, which can allow light weighting of components to avoid nacelles, blades, towers, and foundations becoming unmanageably heavy. So, of course, this is work you know, we're already looking at in the in ORE Catapult, together with colleagues from the National Composite Centre on uh, the dual project. It's the kind of thing that might gain even more traction. But I guess in tandem with that, or kind of against it, depending on how you look at it, I think this whole point about is there an optimum turbine size that works in terms of project economics, but allowing the balance of plant to grow at the same pace, so foundations um, and very much installation to keep pace with the, the turbine size, you know, is there a sweet spot that allows enough of a return on uh, economies of scale from big turbines 
versus just you know a bit of pain caused further down the supply chain for having to to make wider monopiles, heavier floating platforms, having bigger and bigger installation vessels, which you're going to have to get a payback on in a shorter period of time before they become obsolete. I think discussions of a sweet spot on turbine size might take a bit more centre stage. I know they're already happening, but it feels like this could this could accelerate that. Okay, thanks, Gavin, for taking part in this special episode. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.